0: Okay everyone, hi and welcome, I'm very excited to kick off 2016 uh, with episode 70 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast and I could think of nobody better to start this year off um, on this uh, on this podcast with Professor Asker Yukindrup. Hi Asker. Hi, Thanks Hi. for having me. Yeah, no, well it's it's a pleasure. Um, I'm I'm really uh, excited to have you on. Um, particularly as we were just discussing off offline here, this podcast um, for some odd reasons gotten quite popular, and as we're we've passed the half million downloads mark, I'm starting to realise that um, there's lots of people out there that want to hear um, scientists like yourself talk about um, you know the research that they've been doing in the areas of, of sports nutrition and exercise physiology and so on. And of course, as most of the listeners will now have grasped, um, my main focus uh, is typically nutrition, but I'm very interested in things that are related to performance nutrition, uh, of which exercise physiology, of course, is, is there. But I'm particularly interested in, in context and not just looking at the science or discussing mechanistic stuff, Um, Which is obviously very important and it helps inform us by way of providing evidence that we can use as practitioners, coaches and scientists and researchers of course to inform the work we do with with our clients, with our athletes, uh, with ourselves and uh, potentially also help inform the types of studies that we might do but um, in in what I think is going to be the remote likelihood that no one's ever heard of you, Asker, perhaps you could just give us a quick overview as as to who you are um, um, for our listeners. Thank you.
1: Okay, now I can uh, I can start with explaining where my accent is from. That's, that'll be a good start. So um, from Holland um, originally. That's where I graduated, studied um, kind of health sciences. Um, did my PhD in a department that was quite strong in uh, in nutrition, and I had the uh, the background in exercise physiology, and I combined those two and uh, made it something about uh, sports nutrition, and that's something that's always been my uh, my passion. Um, I even when I was doing my PhD, I was trying to um, apply some of the research in the in the field and some of the uh, some of the work that I did with athletes um, gave me the questions that I then took to the uh, to the lab, and we tried to find the answers. So, and I think that's that's something throughout my career that's been very important: is taking taking the science and making it um, accessible and making it um, applied enough so that you can actually uh, use some of the great science that is uh, that's being done. There's also a lot of great signs being done that people never get to see, or that is impossible to translate into something uh, practical. Um, and sometimes I think that's a, that's a little bit of a waste. So after uh, my PhD, I went to the uh, to the US, um, lived there for uh, for a little while, uh, worked at the University of Texas, and then I moved via Holland to um, the University of Birmingham and that's where I spent most of my, uh, my career. Um, we, uh, we did a whole series of studies looking at carbohydrate and fat metabolism, uh, both in an athletic population, also in a not-so-athletic uh, population, everything from sort of elite sports to obesity, diabetes, um, with the, uh, the focus being regulation of metabolism and, uh, and a little bit of uh, nutrition. Then um, after um, the uh, my time at, uh, at, at Birmingham in 2011, I um, went into industry for a little bit, worked as the uh, uh, global senior director of the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, um, flew around the world a lot, learned a lot, um, learned a lot about the, uh, the corporate world, learned a lot about um, sort of the consumer of uh, sports nutrition uh, products um, and then since last year I'm working as a, as a consultant set up a company MySportScience um, and the, uh, the aim really is to help uh, athletes and teams and organizations to achieve their best uh, performances by taking the, uh, taking the evidence from various uh, studies and uh, turning it into something very practical. And throughout my career, as I said, that's that's something that I've tried to do and I've worked over the years with many um, kind of great athletes um, and hopefully I've been able to help them achieve their goals a little bit. They've certainly taught me a lot and uh, have given me a lot of <clears throat> kind of research questions that uh, some of uh, some of those questions that we still need to answer.
0: Yeah. That, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, no, th- thank you. It's a big nutshell. <laughs> uh, but Aska, I think also, I think it's worth mentioning here. Um, I mean, over and above the things that people can discover when they, you know, learn more about you. And uh, as I said, I think many, many of us have, have been reading your work and being influenced by you for the years. But on top of things like having published over 200 research papers and Book chapters and so on. I mean, you, you're actually really quite into this stuff uh, on a personal level, aren't you? I mean, you 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 do Iron Man. Um, I mean, tell us just a little bit about that, because I think it, I think it is relevant to what we're going to get into today. Um, your own actual um, you know uh, experiences as an athlete.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is uh, that. That's what got got me into this in the first place. Is uh, I was uh, I was very interested, uh, mainly in endurance sports. I've got a cycling and uh, triathlon uh, background, and that's something that I've always uh, kept uh, kept doing. Um, And I've uh, I've done quite a few few marathons and uh, quite a few Ironman races, and I made it to Hawaii a few times and. it's uh, yeah. I think it's partly uh, um, it's it's trying to find answers to the uh, also to the questions that I have and how how can I um, for me it was often how can I even with all the travelling that I do and even with all the hours of work that I do how can I make it as efficient as possible mm. and how can I make as few mistakes as possible on the uh, on the nutrition side.
0: Yeah, I mean, I uh, it's interesting. Um... I uh, I have just myself entered a triathlon this year, um, which is called the North Norfolk uh, Triathlon. It's an Olympic distance triathlon. But my my background physically is I'm a, a rugby player, and I'm I'm sort of a 220 pound sort of guy. <laughs> I am struggling. <laughs> I am struggling, but I'm going to do it. I'll be damned. I'm going to do it. My my approach is not to win the triathlon. It's to survive it. <laughs> Uh, so, well let me know if I can help oh i will i i'm pretty sure i'm gonna to have to hire you um in fact one of the one of the things that i've i've sort of found interesting in my experiences with this, and I think any of the guys in particular that are listening, particularly guys that like gadgets, cycling and triathlon is fantastic. There are so many gadgets and and if you're in any way into data like like you are and, and like I am a sports scientist. I mean it just it just is amazing how much stuff you can get you know like power cadence um you got you know you can even have electronic gear changing gadgets you can obviously use gps data um I think it's absolutely fantastic um sport to get into but tell me this how is it that you can spend thousands even you know 10 plus 1000 pounds on a, on, a, on an amazing Triathlon bike or cycling bike, but it doesn't come with pedals.
1: <laughs> That's true. They're they're sold separately. <laughs> that, that is very true.
0: I mean, it's crazy. I was trying to explain to my wife how I I came home with this really expensive bike, but I had to go back to get these pedals. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. So now the reason why I find this interesting is. Um, you know, I myself tend to work mostly. I mean, I do work in elite sport, but I, I work a lot with um, what we call recreational athletes, and I do work a lot with triathletes and cyclists and so on. And and I can see why they love this because I'm starting to enjoy everything that's about it and as I said there's there's the gadgets there's all the it's a lifestyle for sure not just for elite athletes but for anyone that's listening to this because I don't want us to only focus on professional or elite athletes Um, and of course I you know the Ironman is uh, is a classic recreational athlete um, who's immensely dedicated but many of whom still work for a living so I think that, that you know this is an amazing area um but of course you know with all the obsession there is on um, you know on the bike um, buying new upgrades for the bike that weighs a few grams less, despite the fact that the um, the owner of that bike, the rider of that bike, uh, has a few kilos or a lot of kilos of body fat to lose and if, and I guess you know that becomes something that I find fascinating in my work i'm, I'm doing all these test and assessments on, on my clients, but their obsession on buying the latest gear, which at best will provide them very marginal benefits, um, is a bigger priority for them rather than things like you know the, the their fueling, um, their body composition, and and so on. I mean, is that something that that you find also as a coach is something that can be difficult to to get people's head round, you know, their priorities.
1: Yeah, that that for sure. Uh, I mean, the way you describe that is, is something that uh, yeah, and especially in a sport like triathlon, you come across every uh, a- every day. But uh, what what you have to do as a as an athlete or as a as a coach is sit down with someone and say, like, look, what is it? What what are the things that uh, that we need to improve? Where can we make the um, the the biggest gains? Um, what are the things that are really underdeveloped where we could um, we could improve, and what is the investment that's needed in terms of time or or money to uh, to improve those uh, those areas? And that's sort of an analysis that you have to do at a, at the beginning of the season, and then make some decisions. Okay, I'm going to invest in this during the season. I'm going to uh, focus my training on these aspects. Uh, sometimes it's working on your uh, weaknesses, sometimes, and you can further build on your, uh, on your strength, but they are decisions that you have to make at the beginning of the season and you have to analyze all of these, uh, all of these parts. Um, quite a while ago now, we, um, we wrote a research paper that was, uh, it was, uh, it was on cycling only and, um, the, um, uh, the title of the paper was something along the lines of "Where Where is it to best spend your uh, time and money to improve your performance? Is it Is it worth spending many more hours uh, training, or is it worth just investing in a, in a few new wheels? Um, and interestingly, the, um, the the new wheels didn't actually do too bad on that uh, in that analysis uh, for someone who is very trained. Where the gains are very small, and you have to put a lot of hours in to uh, to improve a little bit. Uh, sometimes these things can actually be bought by uh, just getting a few um, a, a set of new wheels. On the other hand, if you already have like pretty good uh, equipment, those gains are very are going to be very very small. Mm. Um, any example that you give with kind of weight or bicycle parts, it's. Uh, that is so marginal that uh, I think very few people in this world would actually uh, notice the effect of, uh, of those few grams. Um, and, yeah, you would be much better off uh, working a little bit on the uh, on your own body composition.
0: So, you know, I think probably the best way then to kick this off from uh, getting into a more technical component here is, for those of us that are interested in endurance sports and and by that i do mean triathlons um cycling marathon that sort of thing but but maybe even more specifically triathlon because i think the the demands of a triathlete are particularly interesting in terms of not only the 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 multiple different types of exercise and the demands as a result of that that it has on the body like you know i mean you have to literally experience this for yourself you know go for a a 40 kilometer bike ride and then try and run 10k it doesn't sound like a 10k would be that hard but after a 45 (laughs) kilometer run that's actually it's kind of weird your your body doesn't even know how to move that way um you know there's a lot to that obviously so practice clearly becomes a big issue but as we get more and more into this and we get you know, much further than, you know, can you even swim? Can you even, you know, pedal a bike? Can you even move in, in terms of, of running? Obviously, we start to get a bit more serious about certain things. And as as a performance nutritionist, I would look at this from the perspective of, of you know, a needs analysis for my client. What are actually the needs of of my client? So perhaps you could give us an idea of what the physiological, or, or I guess if we keep it with a more nutritional sort of focus here, but what are the needs actually of these types of athletes?
1: Well, I think in terms of nutrition, um, the uh, the first and uh, and probably one of the most important needs is to make sure that uh that you put enough energy into uh, into your body if you increase your training that much and you're going to uh, spend uh, more than 10 hours training per week then uh, that is definitely something that you have to pay attention to and it's not just getting the energy in but it's getting the right energy and making sure the carbohydrate stores are uh are topped up um and that uh, that, that, that's sort of uh the the most important and, and immediate concern, um, and I think it's also one of the most common mistakes that I see with people that start on the uh, on the first of January and they decide I'm going to do triathlon this year. Um, yeah, that was me, but it's it's one of the most kind of common mistakes because that usually that decision goes with with a decision like oh I've also got to lose some weight this year, mm. and um, and that, that combination of in, uh, suddenly uh, increasing the um, the training volume, the training intensity, and trying to lose uh, lose weight at the same time, um, that is very often kind of a recipe for uh, for a disaster. Mm. Um, so it's it's you have to think about what comes uh, first: building building the base, focusing on the on the training side, making sure that you fuel that training uh, well, and then build in a period a little bit later where you actually try to get to the right body composition once you've built like a good uh, a good base.
0: That's a good that's a good point there. Actually, it it you know if we use the good old English analogy of a chicken or the egg. You know, which is more important? Because, of course, and you mentioned January the 1st, of course, people such as myself who may have committed themselves to doing this this, this idea of doing a, a triathlon, you know, one is thinking, well, um, I need to train. I definitely need to lose uh, a little bit of uh, weight, especially for the sorts of distances I'm having to, to train for. Um, but do I or does one, you know, um, M- m- tackle the diet to speed up um, weight loss when, of course, that would have a detrimental impact on, on training. And, of course, that would then lead to things like not enjoying the training, not getting the results that you need, and, and inevitably not doing as much in terms of, of time and mileage and so on, which, of course, would actually reduce the amount of energy you burn.
1: Yeah, no, exactly, and that's why I say it's it's probably best to to sort of get to a certain level first, where you can actually go out and do fairly long uh, rides, long longer runs, where you actually do burn a lot of a lot of calories. And once, once you're at that stage, um, it is a lot easier to uh, to lose the weight as well.
0: So it's a question of of timing, I guess. Before one gets into Implementing the rocket science, uh, which some of which we'll get into now, um, behind nutrition, and by that I mean, and we've covered a lot of topics over the last year um, uh, with people such as uh, John Hawley, Trent Stellingworth, uh, James Morton, etc., where we have discussed, you know, this idea of. Uh, train low compete high um we've even got into your favorite topic of all aska keto adaptation <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um you know there, there there's all these things but of course people they get into these sort of sexy popular topics don't they um you know about becoming say m- you know metabolically more efficient when it comes to to fat burning and, and that sort of thing. And I know that you've done some great research in, in that area, but we get lost, which is why I like to focus on, I like people to think about the context, the context in which the research was created and the context in which we should apply the stuff. Because usually, you know, there's, there's benefits to all these approaches, but it's, a, it's more of a question of, of when um, it's appropriate, not necessarily, it, you know, whether it's appropriate at all. Yeah, I, I think where
1: part of the problem is that uh, we li- we live in a world now where everything is sciency. Everything has to be sciency in order to sell something, and in order to kind of write an exciting topic in a uh, magazine, you've got to sound uh, sciency. And that's why people go to kind of what is the latest science? What other scientists are scientists talking about? But then the next step is where it goes wrong. It's like it, it's often those messages get taken out of context they are simplified because now it's got to be translated to the uh, so sort of everyone can understand it and in that simplification um you make huge kind of errors because you make metabolism is not is not that simple um and you cannot just uh take like certain sections take it out of context and then sell it as something that is really simple. Um, to the example of kind of train low is like, well, you can read that there are benefits to training low. Now, the next step then is to write an article in a magazine and say like, training low has these wonderful kind of benefits you increase your fat burning um and if you increase your fat burning you reduce your glycogen breakdown you uh, may be able to last um last longer in uh, in races so surely that's a, that's a good thing so the interpretation is from now on we're just going to do training low and seven days a week we're training low um, that's not the context that the research was in, uh, done in. That is not, um, if, if the research was done that way, the outcome would probably have been, uh, a little bit different. Fat burning would have probably, uh, still increased, but performance would have been reduced, uh, quite a lot. And that's, that's, that's the problem. That's where sometimes this, in this translation from kind of, reading signs to making it accessible to people. That's where the context gets lost and and therefore the message is sometimes wrong.
0: Sure, and you know, uh, and it's been a recurring theme throughout my podcast is the fact that there is a great deal of individual and inter-individual variability between people which um, often isn't made explicit in um, you no know, publications out there because they often don't show you all the data, therefore, you don't realize that they're just publishing means. So, of course, we you know we look at you know like the the Brooks and Mercer crossover concept, for example, where you know everyone starts off you know, um, at low intensity exercise burning fat, and at high intensity, um, you know, as the intensity increases, we use progressively more carbohydrates. And, of course, one one way of interpreting that is we use fats at low intensities and carbs at high intensities. But of course in reality we use a mixture of fuel. The other thing though, and it's very context very much a context issue is depends who we're talking about. I know people who um um who who they themselves would consider what what you, for example, would would find as an aerobic exercise to to someone else who's not particularly fit that might be a more anaerobic form of exercise. Um, just you know, for someone who's really unfit, just going for a three or five k run, even if they're just jogging, can be incredibly hard work. Um, and and also, there's this idea that that what you it's not just your training; it's your diet and lifestyle that can train one's metabolism. So of course. Like you said, there's a lot of complexities here. So let 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 let's, let's give you a chance of being the uh, professor quickly. So, um, you know, could you just quickly explain to us why it's important that we understand that the metabolism does actually use more than just one fuel? Well,
1: why that is it important? Yeah, um, I mean,
0: why is it important for us to realise that it's it's not simply a case of we use fat at low intensity and then you know it's only when we're at mega high intensity that we're just using carbs. There is a variety of fuels used, and that is maybe something that we we might want to influence through our training and diet as well.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it comes back to the the fact that people like kind of black and white, and they like that there's a switch to go from fat to carbohydrate, and then uh, the same switch can get you back from carbohydrate to uh, to fat. And as you say, that's. That is definitely not, uh, not the case. So it's always in all situations you have a mixture of carbohydrate and, and fat that uh, that you're using. And depending on uh, the conditions, depending on the stores of your carbohydrate and depending on your diet, um, you use a different, uh, a different mix in different uh, situations. Generally, it's true that the higher the intensity, uh, the more carbohydrate you will use. Um, and the lower the intensity, um, the the more fat you will use. But it's always a mixture of the uh, of the two. The other factor that's really important, I think, is that there is a huge difference between individuals, and uh, we don't find a whole lot of this in the uh, in the literature, but. Um there are a few papers and we've we've suggested this that um some people are just better at burning fat than uh, than others and this is independent of their body composition, it's independent of, of their uh diet. Um it is it is genetic, exactly why it is that way is not it's not clear. Um Papers have suggested that it's related to uh, fiber type, but even fiber type cannot explain um, a very large part of the individual variation individual variation that we see. So um, there's still, there's a a lot of complexities there um, as well and a lot of kind of individual variation that may actually be quite, uh, quite relevant and interesting also, to uh, to study in relation to um, uh, disease states as well. Um, in terms of, like some people are fat burners, uh, some people are carbohydrate uh, burners, and some people sit somewhere in the in the middle. It doesn't seem to correlate very well with uh, with performance. So, I think you can achieve at the highest level whether you're a fat burner or a carbohydrate burner. Um, at least, that's uh, that's definitely the um, the message that I've taken away from all the sort of elite athletes that uh, that I've mentioned. Um, you can definitely see that during a season you can improve things and you can um, you can increase your fat burning and decrease the, your um, reliance on uh, on carbohydrate. And generally, I think that's a, that's a positive um adaptation not always but in uh, in in most situations it is um but it is very difficult to turn a uh, a carbohydrate burner into uh into a complete fat burner the the profile that you have seems to be your individual profile and your fat oxidation curve that we often describe where um you measure fat oxidation over a wide range of intensities and that gives a curve that is quite uh specific to the uh, to the individual you can shift that curve up and down uh but you can't change the shape of that curve very much um so there's a lot about that that we still don't uh, don't understand and uh, I think that that's definitely a research area that I would love to get into a little bit more
0: yeah, it I mean it is it is really interesting, particularly when you consider, you know, how much fat and how much carbohydrate the body actually stores. And and um I I may not be mega accurate when I say this, but you know, there there's there's maybe hour, hour and a half of stored carbohydrates in, in um, you know, in the body for Say, running on, whereas at uh, high intensity, whereas um, as far as fat is concerned, there are um, going to be days' worth of events aren 't there so all, so I guess what this kind of boils down to more is um, glycogen availability and um, glycogen utilization um which is where for example in your papers you discussed and i think generally we're now teaching people about the relevance of the length of the event itself if it's only an hour you know maybe it doesn't matter if you burn through a bunch of carbohydrate because you're just not going to run out of it plus you'll be faster whereas if you're doing a you know a five-day ultra endurance event across the arctic or across the desert that's probably a bigger factor if Particularly if you actually want to win the event. I mean, what what are your thoughts on on that?
1: Yeah, I, I would say if the the lower the the lower the intensity or the longer the uh, the the event, whatever way you look at it, um, I think the more you'd be able to get away with more fat or less uh, less carbohydrate. And I think ultra running is a is a good example of that. You, there are examples of like very elite ultra runners who um who win races on at least what is said to be relatively low carbohydrate intakes um but you can also see people at that level who do that the same event with very high carbohydrate intakes so it, it just gives you more options and in, in those sports where high intensity is critical um either because it's a shorter event that is uh, with with a high intensity overall or where the uh, the size of moments are really dependent on on very high intensities cycling is an is an example of that um then carbohydrate requirements are so critical um that uh, that that's going to determine performance and we in in cycling there's been Kind of talk about people who are on kind of lower carbohydrate uh, diets, and uh, but uh, generally, I, I I think the belief in cycling now is that you cannot sustain the uh, the intensity, and you cannot do that for uh, for very long. And the cyclists that have tried it, they've they've come and gone, and they've gone back to uh, to the high carbohydrate approach. So uh, I think you learn you learn very quickly by your mistakes, and, uh, and I think uh, trying that approach in in a sport like cycling is is a mistake.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm inclined to agree with you. I went for a, a phase of being somewhat obsessed by the whole um, improving fat oxidation sort of scenario, and um, I mean, there's you know there's different angles we could go with this. In fact, my um, colleague um, at Guru Performance, Scott Robinson, is uh, finishing up his PhD work in, in this area. Um, but one area of interest he has is um, how improving fat oxidation um, can have um, metabolic health benefits, which of course is another subject, um, to the ones that tend to uh, take up um Um, far more space than it should on uh, social media, you know, this idea of becoming keto adapted and that's that whole polarized debate of everyone should be fat adapted and carbohydrates are the worst thing in the world. And of course, you know, that's the whole context thing out the window again, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it's Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I
1: do believe that there's uh, there are benefits to um, becoming more um, fat adapted and to really develop your uh, fat metabolism, but at the same time, um, that's not something you want to do every every day and every time, mm. um, because if you if you do that, it is impossible to train your carbohydrate metabolism at the at the same time. Mm. So you make one. Part of your metabolism better, but you make the other part worse, and that's why I always say you gotta you gotta train both. And it's a little bit like um, if you do kind of long, slow distance uh, training or endurance sort of steady steady exercise uh, versus interval uh, training. Um, it's not that you would do one type of training. You put together a training program where you do both. Some days you do it. Inter- the whole training with very high intensity um, work in there sometimes you go longer and and, and slower and um, you wouldn't think of just doing one type of training only it's the same with with uh, with diets you wouldn't always be on a higher fat diet or a low carb diet uh, you wouldn't always like uh, load up on uh, on carbohydrates for every training session and i I don't see why you would do that, Sure. Uh, but that's that's very often how things get interpreted. You either train low or you train high. It's it's not you combine the two.
0: Yeah, I, lo- I like James Morton's analogy, which is um, about training smart carb as opposed to it's not low, it's not high, just train smart. You know this. I guess this it's, it's down this uh, this area, which which I, I kind of like the term periodization because my background strength and conditioning. Um, and I do like the idea of periodizing carbohydrates but um, I also I, I sort of in my own head I've, I've come to think of fat and carbohydrates a bit like my left and right hand um, I don't think it's a case of um, would I you know, use only one or the other um, I need them both, one may be more dominant than the other one may be better trained for specific purposes and, and with one, one of my hands or arms I'm more likely to get more done just be, just by virtue of those adaptations. But I think to think of one without the other is, is kind of asinine. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah. So, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, this, this business of uh, 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 fats and carbohydrates and fat oxidation. Um, in a minute, I want to talk a bit about carbohydrate loading and a few other things things about carbohydrate timing because I think they're rather interesting and you've done some work on this but another area that um, you, you've uh, done a lot of work on and in fact it's a, a test that um, one of the tests that we actually use in our own lab um, is the fat max um, which you uh, I think um, you know we, we can credit you for the creation of the fat max briefly how did that even come about?
1: It uh, came about because we, look looking at the literature, um, questions like, do, do you oxidize more fat when, um, when you're trained? Generally, those questions were answered by looking at one particular exercise intensity in a group of trained and a group of untrained uh, people. And the question I had is, well, if you look at 50% of VO2 max or at a fixed sort of in, intensity, um, does it mean that you and you find a difference does it mean that that difference exists at all intensities or is that conclusion that you draw very specific for the intensity that the measurements were done in um, so we started to look at that a little bit more and um, uh, we we started to develop uh, or the, the aim was to develop a test where you could measure fat oxidation at a whole range of intensities. Um, we started doing some studies where on one day we would measure at a low intensity, another day medium intensity, and then another day high intensity. Um, but that becomes a very laborsome um, <laughs> ordeal where you have to ask people to come back and usually in a fasted state, and it's it's very time consuming. So we're wondering, what if we took those measurements and we tried to turn that test into a much shorter, simpler uh, test where um, a graded exercise test where you, uh, within kind of 45 minutes or 30 to 45 minutes, um, you go through a whole range of intensities. Um, The problem there is of course that as you go through that uh, test, you're going to change your metabolism because metabolism changes Um, over time you're going to also have some problems with achieving a uh, a steady state um, because you need a certain time for these uh, measurements of uh, the RER measurements to kind of stabilize and uh, only when you have a steady state are they meaningful. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a few people that that um, published some papers recently that uh, seem to uh, forget that that is important. Uh, but if you don't, uh, if you don't wait for a, a steady state, then uh, your your results are going to be pretty meaningless. So we um, we then compared like lots of different protocols uh, with different durations of uh, of tests, and we compared it with. The, um, the exercises done on uh, different, uh, different days and um, we, in the end, we figured out after quite a lot of work, it's probably three years of work before we actually uh, settled on a protocol that we, we felt happy with, where um, there was enough of a steady state to actually draw conclusions. The correlations with the exercises done on uh, different days was, uh, was outstanding. Um, the test duration is still um, acceptable, and, and and so on. So, and that is what we then called the uh, the fat max test, and that's what we used in subsequent studies to uh, to study various aspects and compare um, elite athletes, not so elite athletes, and and so on.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, well, thank you, because we we've been using it somewhat uh, in this past year or so. So listen, let's um let's just quickly get back into the whole carbohydrate thing. And you know, we, we talked about endurance athletes, triathletes, runners, cyclists, and, and you know, if there's one thing that, that, that they all do is they get really obsessed with things like carbohydrate loading and uh using gels or other strategies um during their exercise sessions. And I think it's worth discussing Um, This a bit because you know people people's obsession with loading up um, with carbohydrates and their use Under use or overuse of of these of these products during their activities is is something that maybe is not so well understood Yes training session and I guess when I'm saying that we should probably illustrate at what point carbohydrates um in terms of pre during and post exercise or or event at what point are they even relevant um for us to take in exogenously over and above you know the daily diet um, um you know wh- wh- where where are we with that well I think a little,
1: a little bit of metal um I think it all depends on the duration of the uh, duration of the exercise and and what what you are training for. So that makes a huge difference. Um, and I think that the main purpose of using the, using carbohydrate in training is to get used to training with carbohydrate and racing with carbohydrate. That that is probably the main uh, the main reason. Um, a second reason would be to make sure that you can maintain the quality of your uh, of your training so anytime quality is important or anytime you're training very specifically for your uh, race um, this is going to be a a practice that is probably useful. Um, There are other days where probably you don't need it um, because it is a lower intensity the quality of training is not that important or you're even trying to train your fat metabolism, in which case it's probably not a good idea to take uh, to take a lot of carbohydrate. Um, if the exercise or the, your 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 races are going to be longer, definitely if it's longer than uh, than two hours, um, it is a practice that uh, that is good to uh, um, good to use in in training as well, so that once. Uh, you get to your race, you know exactly what to do, you know what you can tolerate, and uh, you can get to the uh, recommended carbohydrate intake for your event. So I don't know if that answers the the question. No, it
0: it does. I think that makes things quite clear. And, um, you know, with regards to actually taking in carbohydrate, I, I guess the burning question for lots of people is, how much I mean, how much do we actually take? do we just have a pasta party like they used to do and start like you know many days out, or can we can we actually load up fully um with a more reasonable quantity within a more reasonable time frame i mean what what's what where are we now with this
1: yeah I'll, I'll give you my sort of personal uh, personal opinion so in the sixties we had the uh, um, The pretty extreme kind of carbohydrate loading uh, protocols, and what that achieved is like extremely high glycogen concentrations in the uh, in the muscle, and some some of the measurements from those days are still um, amongst the highest kind of ever reported in the in the literature so but but it was a very extreme approach with a few days of taking no carbohydrates then uh, a few days of taking only carbohydrate um, and with no training for uh, for a week not very practical Um, so the the more kind of modern approach to it is uh, i guess is is a much more moderate approach where you um you have a fairly high carbohydrate intake in the days uh, in the days leading up and especially the last uh, two days before um, an event but my personal take on this is that the, the most important thing you're trying to avoid the day of your uh, race is um that your carbohydrate stores are not um are, are too low mm. um you're not for me, it's not about making sure that your stores are as full as possible or as as high as they can be. Um, because what happens during exercise, of course, is the higher your glycogen concentration, the higher your rates of glycogenolysis. So you break down carbohydrate much faster if you have extremely high glycogen stores. An hour and a half or two hours into um into a run or a ride, um, you may find that your glycogen concentration is actually um, pretty much the same because the rates of glycogenolysis were higher with the higher starting glycogen content. So I think with that in mind, it, there is really no need to kind of overdo it on the carbohydrate, especially um, if you are pretty trained and you're very good at synthesizing glycogen anyway. Um, so I would definitely go for a more uh, kind of moderate approach, always kind of avoiding that you start with uh, kind of suboptimal uh, glycogen source, but uh, no no need to really overdo it.
0: Yeah, so I guess, you know, what you're saying really is rather than being obsessed with loading, we, we, we you know, it, in order to ensure there's sufficient glycogen availability for what we're going to do, as long as our day-to-day uh, nutrition is right, um, and um, and then we maybe top it up, um, then that's the solution. Because I have read in some of your work uh, and by some others, there are potential consequences. Are are there not to performance or or um, improving glycogen availability and or uh, glycogen synthesis by overdoing the carbohydrates?
1: Yeah, there, I mean there are also consequences in terms of uh, weight. Of course, every gram of glycogen is stored with three grams of uh, of water, so that's a consideration in some sports as well. Is it? Is it? Uh, is it bad weight gain? Is that something that you really uh, really want? And, uh, so yeah, there's a there are a number of uh, considerations, but I don't think there's any need to kind uh, of over overdo it.
0: No, that yeah, great. So. It, it... With regards to utilizing exogenous um, carbohydrates, whether it's a a form of real food, um, whatever that means, or or some form of supplement like a gel, you know, I know you've said roughly two hours, but, you know, people can get pretty obsessed about what they carry on their little belts or in their cycling jerseys. Um, Assuming someone is getting their training right and... Uh, they don't have any particularly significant issues with body composition. What what do you feel is an appropriate strategy for for those types of um, uh, foods or products?
1: Well, I, I would always, like, the starting point for me is always, what's the duration of your event? So if it's, uh, if it's two and a half hours or longer, I would even go as high, probably as 90 grams per hour. But if it's... Um, if it's just below that, I would be in the range of thirty to sixty grams per hour. So that would be the uh, the target. Then the next question is, how will you achieve that carbohydrate uh, target? Um, and that's partly driven also by the what what your fluid needs are. Um, so if you cover your fluid needs with a a, a sports drink, that's going to be a major source of your. Uh, of your carbohydrate. If you cover it with water, then um, you have to get your carbohydrate obviously from uh, from somewhere else. So it then becomes a little of a bit of a puzzle to put it uh, put it all together. But it's it, I I think it's actually pretty simple. You figure out how much you need in terms of uh, fluids, in terms of hydration. You figure out how much you need in terms of carbohydrate, which is mostly dependent on the uh, on the duration of, uh, of exercise, and you, you try and put the two together. Um, in, in terms of, uh, actually, availability, it doesn't matter whether you take gels, combine them with water, or you take a sports drink. Um, the difference is that a sports drink is, uh, is mixed before it gets into the bottle, and if you take gels and water, you mix it in your stomach. The, the end result is pretty much the same. Um, with with bars, it's a little bit different. If you uh, because uh, fiber, fat, protein, uh, they're parts of parts of a bar, um, and some pa- bars may contain a little bit more than others. Uh, but they're all factors that are going to slow down the delivery of your uh, nutrients, your water, and your carbohydrate. Okay. So um, ideally, you want bars that uh, that are low in fat, fiber, and protein. Um High in carbohydrate, and then the difference with with a jello or drink again is pretty uh,
0: small and of course like with with all these things it, you know it as you mentioned there's various ways that this can be done you know there's more than one way to skin a cat, as we like to say um you know and many of them will work well for you, so I guess the main thing there is trialing these things, but certainly not on the day of your competition. <laughs> Exactly. exactly,
1: exactly, and that's why kind of training, training your nutrition practices in the in in, in the week leading up to an event is, uh, is is extremely important. Figuring out what works for you. Um, some people don't like taking solid food at all. Um, some people cannot compete without taking something uh, something solid. So mm. um, there are huge sort of individual differences there too that have to be taken into
0: account. And actually, Asuka, that's the perfect segue to the last sort of area I wanted to get into because we're we're running out of time here. Um, a couple of years ago, I heard you give a, a really interesting um, lecture at the um, International Sports and Exercise Nutrition Conference. And it was uh, to do with training the gut. Now, anybody uh, that has any um, experience with this, um, you know, endurance events like triathlons, uh, for example, um, either personally themselves or have seen someone else uh, suffer from um, some pretty horrible gastric distress during the event itself, which... Um, I uh, don't suggest anyone Googles this, but of course people um, will now that I've said it. But um, there are some images out there where there are athletes who've unfortunately had runner's trots, um, where the contents of their uh, their guts and bowels inevitably have ended up coming out the orifices. Um, but... Um, simply just not eating is not always the solution to that because as you've pointed out um, in some of your work in this lecture that I, I heard that uh, part of the solution may actually also be into training the gut to deal with some of these things. Could you elucidate a bit on what I was saying there?
1: Yeah, so so training the gut I think is, uh, is, a, is actually a critical component of, kind of endurance training. Um, and the longer the events, the more critical this uh, this becomes, and it's really for two reasons. One, and they're somewhat related, but the first one is the area that you mentioned with stomach um, comfort, uh, GI problems. Um, but the other area is actually that you can also upregulate transporters in the uh, in the intestine and um, improve the delivery of uh, of energy of carbohydrates by uh, training the uh, the gut, so it is something that I think should be part of every athlete's kind of regime. It should be built into the uh, kind of weekly uh, training program, um, and it's related also to the fact that you just need to train what you're going to do on uh, on race day. Um, the the evidence. Um, of the improved absorption is uh, is quite strong, mostly uh, although mostly based on uh, on animal work. Um, but you can within a few days you can see an upregulation of the SGLT1 uh, transporter, um, and the uh, the number of transporters uh, increases actually quite dramatically in just a few days on a higher carbohydrate uh, diet. There's one one study by Greg Cox um done in athletes um and they increased the carbohydrate content of the of the diet slightly but mostly by giving uh, athletes carbohydrate before during um and after their their training and they saw that the ability to use carbohydrate from uh, a drink was uh, dramatically um improved so that's that's an important area um and in in terms of uh, gi problems I, th- I think just practicing the fact that you're you're out there at pretty high intensity and uh and you still have to consume a lot of fluid and uh, and, and carbohydrate um that is something that needs to be uh, needs to be practiced if you've never done that um then uh, I, I think it's very predictable that your race is going to be um, a little bit of a disaster, uh, but it is extremely trainable, and um, it, it all you have to do is look at um, these. Uh, I'm not a big fan of these, but uh, these uh, kind of eating uh, contests. Um, oh. The amount that those people can eat is just phenomenal, and it's just by training the uh, the gut, and it just shows that. Uh, um I think the world record is sixty-nine hot dogs in uh in in ten minutes. Those are kind of figures you can't even imagine, but with the uh appropriate training you can actually get to uh, get to that.
0: I um I suspect that um he's not gonna be going for a run immediately after that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that would be not so pleasant. Um so uh also, as you were saying that, I think a, a sort of a, we've gotta bring this to a close now, but um you know one problem with people generally, and this goes for anything is their initial experience dictates to them you know whether or not something works or not, and we see that of course, you know right now it's sort of popular for people to be discussing what sort of diet, whether it's you know uh, a detox diet or a gluten free diet, and of course they do it once and it works you know they lose weight a couple of days later weight obviously not body composition uh wise but you know oh it must work or or they try something and they get a bit of bloating and therefore they're intolerant to gluten but of course it it it, you know they're not giving the body a chance to adapt to this thing um so i guess it's it's also important that that we allow the body to adapt like we do for training it's not unusual for someone to experience soreness after an initial um, few weeks of training. Well, the same thing might happen when we're trying to train the uh, the gut or, or the body generally to interact and tolerate with a, a food that it hasn't normally interacted with.
1: No, absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, the human body is extremely... Uh, Adaptable and just going around the world, seeing how people function very well on completely different Mm. diets—some that are very high in fat, some that are very um, low in fat and high in Um, carbohydrate—but they they seem to function quite well. (laughs) So it's extremely adaptable.
0: So I've mentioned this a few times before, and and for all the you know we call this we do science, you know you. You've got an immense amount of knowledge, education, and research publications. I've, I've, I've done. This is the seventieth episode, and at least I think something like sixty-five of them are PhDs, and maybe over a dozen are professors like yourself. But ultimately, am I making a fair statement, Asker, when I say we really don't know very much, do we?
1: <laughs> no, and there's also the more the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. So that's for sure.
0: Yeah, but that's Look, also
1: that's, that's exciting, and that keeps us in the job, right?
0: That well, yes, exactly. Yes, I'm hoping so for a long time. <laughs> so, speaking of which, um, you know, how can folks find out more about you? You've mentioned your mysportscience.com website, which um, is an excellent way of uh, keeping up with the latest in sports science, of course, particularly with all the the blogs and articles written by yourself and your guest. Authors is a very good way of of um, getting the science, but helping you know helping us all understand it a bit more. Um, so there's mysportsscience.com. But do you do you? Uh, what about Twitter? What's your Twitter account for listeners?
1: My Twitter account is at Jukendrup, which is J E U K E N D R U P. And uh, usually, what I try and do is, uh, as soon as something new is uploaded on uh, com, then I'll communicate it that way. And other kind of interesting papers that I come across, and uh, interesting conversations that I have with people, they'll uh, they'll also end up on my uh, Twitter. Um,
0: no, that's great, and I'll add I'll add all of this to your page with this podcast on our, on a our website under the resources. That way, people can come across. But I, I, I do have a burning question, and and um, you know, because sort of English is very much the international language for sports science, but um have you have you actually had to publish any work in um you know, in Dutch for example?
1: I have done a little bit. Very little, I have to say. <laughs> Probably 99 <laughs> percent of this uh is uh is in English, but uh I have uh, published in, uh, in in Dutch and also other languages, but
0: <laughs> no, it it. I think it's. I think it's. It's admirable, you know, with the likes of yourself, and obviously, um, I had Luke van Luke on the other day, and I've had a few other people from other parts of the world. But it's very interesting how we all come together. But I I lived in America as well for quite some time, and there, it's interesting how, although there's commonalities in the language, there they are definitely foreign languages, and we express, you know, these things in very different ways. And I I, I think sometimes that that can be a factor in how people sometimes misinterpret stuff because there is, of course, a difference between British English, American English, and everyone else's form of English.
1: That's that's for sure, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, Aska, thank you so much uh, for your time and and sharing uh, your knowledge with us. you know, that brings us to the end of um, this podcast. As I said, I'll have a, a page uh, for you on our um, on our website for this. Um, if folks want to learn more about you, we've just discussed your on com and the various links. If people want to find more about this podcast and uh, the other activities we get up to at Guru Performance, just type in guruperformance.com. That's both our... Um, our uh, clinic and laboratory in London, as well as our educational uh, things that we do. And I, of course, am the program leader for the MSc in Sports Nutrition at Middlesex University um, and the ISSN Diploma, which um, you can learn about at guruperformance.com. So thank you, Asker, for your time. And uh, perhaps we'll, we'll get you back on soon to talk about something in the near future.
1: I would love that. Thank great. you very much and uh, keep up the great work.
0: That, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and I, uh, of course, am Laura Barack. Speak to you all very soon.